Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. Grew up with siblings like I did. You probably remember that moment where there was a race to tell on the other person. It didn't matter what really happened. It was about who got to the grown-ups first. Because whoever tells the story first, well, that's the one that's believed. Well, most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't matter who gets there first. It's the person they believe the most that's believed, even if what they're telling isn't true. That's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast, and I did grow up with a handful of siblings and cousins and but kids that kind of thought they were part of our family, but, you know, they weren't biologically part of our family. We always had a house full of kids, ours and otherwise. And on a regular basis, there was an event that happened. Whatever the event was, somebody broke something, somebody took something, somebody started a fight, somebody started an argument, somebody wouldn't let them change the channel, somebody wouldn't let them wear the clothes. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. But over the years, what I learned is... The first person to get to the adults to tell them their version of the story, well, they tend to be the one that is most likely believed. Unless, of course, the one that got to them first is also the one who is most common to lie, the less likely to be believed, the one who's more likely to make stuff up. Then it doesn't really matter who gets there first. They've always got the one source in the back of their mind as the grown-ups in the room as to what the truth actually is. Who is the one person you can always ask and know you're going to get the closest version to truth? Because, you know, sometimes what you think is true it sounds good, sounds plausible. All the details, all the facts, they, they seem to line up. I mean, I can see it happening that way. Let me tell you something. If you've ever read the Birth Order book by Kevin Lehman, you'll know that the middle child is always the supreme negotiator. They're always the one who figures out how to keep harmony, keep balance, and somehow manipulate until they win the day. Blend that together with a natural skill to read people and a gift for storytelling, and you have a very dangerous combination. Most of those people go into journalism or acting because they're really good at taking a scenario, taking a situation and, well, spinning it in their favor. Spinning it is a really important aspect of that truth. They're really good at taking all the details that everybody else has also observed and, well, winning people over to their side. If they're not in journalism, then they're in politics or they're in law or they're in sales. Because good storytellers who can also read people can be extremely manipulative. Now, if you're in a leadership role and you have someone in your organization who is, well, fits that bill, a great observer, good at reading people, good at telling stories, they probably work in your sales team or your marketing team, but the real high probability that they are going to look at every situation and ask the honest question, how can I make myself look good even if it's at the peril of others. It's, it's the natural thing. And, and if they also have a high sense of justice that 
everything should be fair and everything should come out evenly and well now they're going to manipulate the situation and the circumstances and whatever event happened until it looks really good to them through their lens through their perspective they're going to manipulate the world until it pays off the way they think it should whether that's ultimately right or not is irrelevant now, if you're a leader and you have people in your organization like that, there will be times that you're going to find yourself thinking, well, their story sounds good and it sounds plausible and they seem to have thought about everybody else's perspective and position on this. And, and I think that's probably the most complete, most well thought out, most thorough depiction of what actually happened. It's because the great storyteller who pays close attention to other people, they know how that works. Side note, AI does that really, really well. It analyzes everything you're thinking, everything you're saying, who your friends are, where you've been, what you've done, what you bought, what you sold. And it gives you answers based on all of those things, not necessarily based on the cold hard facts or the truth, but based on kind of what it thinks is going to be the best answer according to your truth. And those may not always be the truth, just a truth that sounds plausible to you. Sometimes we call that a confirmation bias. You should be aware of that. But a good salesperson on your team, a good spinner of the story on your team could have you believing that everybody else on your team is conspiring against you. Or that maybe even you're conspiring against yourself and didn't know it. That you've come up with these new ideas, plans, policies, sales procedures and they're detrimental to your outcome. And a really good spinner of stories might even convince you that you need to change personnel or policies or procedures based on their perceptions. The first one to get to you with their version of the truth might be the one you believe. It might be the one who has the best story. It might be the one who has the greatest track record of success or winning the day. And all of those things come into the mind of the leader. You've got to figure out which one is the best. Now, what if, what if you're on the other side, though? What if you're the person who's always getting taken advantage of, pushed over, run over? You're always getting railroaded by the process because someone else is always faster to get to the boss's office or always has the boss's ear. They already have the boss's trust. Maybe, maybe through a little nepotism, they already have the upper hand. I was talking to a coaching client the other day, and he said, someone in the office came to me and said, you were really rough on that other person. You need to go apologize. And he said, I, I just did my job. That's what I was supposed to do. He's the CEO of the company, by the way. But this one individual had his ear enough that after about half an hour, he actually did go and apologize to another person. Irony. Ready for the irony? The other person that he went to apologize to is way further up the food chain than the person who told the boss, you need to apologize. That's pretty ironic. Except when you realize that sometimes the credibility of the teller of the story has more weight, more bearing on the truth as it's perceived than the actual facts of the story. Yep, that one individual who said, boss, you need to apologize. That's a powerful position 
to put yourself in to go to the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss and say, dude, you're out of line. But when you've got the credibility, the relationship, the track record of being trustworthy and trusted, rank doesn't have anything to do with it. Position in the company doesn't have anything to do with it. It's are you credible enough as an individual to approach the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss and say, hey boss, you were out of line. Excuse me, Mr. Emperor, I know everybody else is lying to you, but sir, you are naked. Everybody can see your flaws, your wrinkles, your warts, and your cellulite. True story. You better have not only the moxie, the, the cojones, if you will, to be able to step up to the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss and make that statement. You better have your ducks in a row. You better know where all of your ducks are and exactly what they're up to. I, I was reading just this morning. I haven't dug into the real book, I, or the whole book. This is uh, shiny, hard to read. This is the uh, Good Leaders Ask Great Questions by John Maxwell. Um, it's on my reading list for the near future, but I was just kind of perusing through it early this morning. It says, um, this is page 206. Why it's important to be specific, he says. The higher the stakes, the more important it is that you have solid, specific evidence. The more important the message, the more important it is to give great evidence. The more important the person the more important it is to give great evidence. The more important the timing, the more important it is to give good evidence. Then he says, assess your influence and credibility with your leader because, quote, and this is a quote from Neil Postman. It's right here in the book. The quote says, the credibility of the teller is the ultimate test of truth of a proposition. The credibility of the teller is the ultimate test of the truth of the proposition. Now we could diagram that sentence and we'd probably spend a couple of hours on it. In fact, in the book, that's kind of a core principle in this whole chapter. I, I, here's the irony though, the chapter, the chapter starts on page 203 and the beginning of the chapter, the heading of the chapter is, how can I succeed in working under poor leadership? How can I succeed in working under poor leadership? That's a tough question. And he says, you know, I'm going to give you some examples on this. He's got 50 years of leadership under his belt, successful leadership, training people all over the world from governments to church leaders to business leaders to individual entrepreneurs. I, I think he's got some credibility in that. But he says, I'm going to give you the process and I want you to know up front, kind of like a disclaimer. Sometimes this is going to work great. Sometimes this isn't going to work at all. And then he goes through a list of things to, to say you should confront your boss. If you feel like you've been fair, unfairly treated, you should say something. There's another little quote. I gotta share this one with you. I don't wanna mess it up, it was so good. A little golden nugget. Um, this one is on page 208. A little call out box. Jules Ellinger said, there's never been a statue erected to the memory of someone who left well enough alone. Let that one settle in for a minute. There has never been a statue erected in the memory of someone who left well enough alone. Well, you've probably heard many times, and John Maxwell points it out quite often, you gotta go along to get along. Sometimes you just gotta go along with the agenda of everybody else if you're gonna keep the peace. Just remember the counterbalance to that is there has never been a statue erected in the memory of someone 
who left well enough alone. See, the job of the leader often is to draw the line in the sand, dig your heels in, call the line and say that this is where we stop. Think of Braveheart and freedom. And he said right here, this, this, is, the, this is the place. We've had enough. Uh, if we die on this hill, so be it. <clears throat> but this hill, this moment, this place, this, this is as far as it goes. The buck stops here. Now, you can imagine if you've been under poor leadership, and I think everybody in leadership at some point either has been a poor leader and they recognized it and began to change, or they've been under a poor leader. Now, I'm going to go back in my own life. Holy cow, it's hard to believe I'm this old, but 35 years ago, I had a little old lady in a church. Um, Now, this tells you a little bit about who I am, but I think you know that by now if you've been watching this program for any length of time. She approached me during a prayer time. It was just, it was before church. Nothing else is going on. There's nobody else in the room. And I had approached her and asked her, why do you always wear a hat? And she gave me her doctrinal theological explanation on why she always wore a hat. That was the extent of our relationship. That was it. Never had a long conversation with her before that. But after that, a couple of weeks later, we were in the in the sanctuary before service started and She just called me over and she said, I I have a word for you. And I wrote it down in my journal as close to word for word as I can remember. It's been 30 years ago. It's in my journal because time passes and I might forget. But what she said was something very much like this. She said, throughout the course of your life, the gifts and talents that God has given you are going to be a challenge for those who are meant to lead you. You're going to find yourself in a place where the people who are appointed leader above you don't have the skills that you have. And while there's going to be a declaration to you to submit yourself to their leadership, just understand the biggest problem they have with you is jealousy. They're jealous that they don't have your skill set. They're jealous that they can't lead like you can. I was 20. I didn't know anything about leadership. I probably, in a, within about a six-month period of that moment, had just finished reading Becoming a Person of Influence by John Maxwell because I read those three books in that same year, Becoming a Person of Influence by John Maxwell, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, and Bringing Up Boys by James Dobson. Those were the books that began to shape my leadership. But I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anything about leadership. I was still a, I think I was an airman first class at that point. I wasn't even a junior NCO. I was a nobody, nobody. Nobody knew who I was, not in civilian life, not in the church, not in the, not in the Air Force. I was a nobody's nobody. To have those words spoken into my life, I kind of set them aside. I kind of dismissed them. I, I, I didn't take much credibility in them then. But I can tell you in the last 35 years of my life, the words have rang true. The experiences are innumerable in the times that I have had an opportunity to serve, been appointed under someone who was less competent, less qualified, didn't have the skills, didn't have the training, didn't have the personality, didn't have the character, didn't have the credibility, didn't have the integrity. And I tried my best to submit to be a good follower. It's hard. It's really hard. I'm going to tell you what's even harder, though. When you find yourself in that position 
and you try to make a change in the leadership. Not necessarily to say, well, I want them gone and I should get that spot. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about trying to have a voice with the leader to say, you know, I, I can help you in this area if you'll let me. Let me come alongside you. Let's tell you, that's been one of the biggest tests of my character, of my life, has to been able to, to be the person who can come along someone else, come alongside someone else in leadership and say, I'm here to benefit and support you, not to usurp you, not to take your place, not to take your authority or your power, but to benefit you. I'm here to help if you'll let me help. And I would say, like John said, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's just no space for two people with large egos. And I've tried to squish my ego into a box and say, okay, I'll just do it your way. But there have been times that in that capacity, I realize my ego will not stay in the box. I can also tell you firsthand experience. I've told this story before, but I want to put it in this context because it, it is a little bit different perspective on the event. There was a time that I took a job and I was hired in as a regular employee into a company that was a startup. Now, I've always had strong opinions and I've always had strong ideas and I've always been a researcher and a reader and a studier. If I switched cameras, you can see all the books in my office and I probably read 60 to 70% of them cover to cover. You can tell because when you open them up, there are notes. I date my notes, I date my journal, I date the entries. I tell you which journal you can find those notes in and I highlight and I underline and I write my own ideas in the margins and all the books that I've read cover to cover, you'll see when I started the book and when I ended reading that book based on the notes in the margins. So I've always been a researcher and I've always had some new ideas and I've always had some ideas of my own and some of them, well, frankly, they're stupid. I've told bosses since I was 25 years old, I probably will have a thousand ideas about what you could do differently in your business. And of those thousand ideas, 950 of them are absolute garbage, or you've already tried them and they didn't work, and you have a reason for why they didn't work. 50 of them are worth considering. Five of them will change the world if you implement them, but they might rock the boat at the same time. So that's always been who I've been for the last 30 plus years. I'm hired into a job, I'm sitting in a meeting, and in this corporate meeting, the, the more important, more powerful people than me, I'm just here to take notes, but one of them had an idea, and frankly, from his point of view, it was a great idea, but from the logistics of those of us who had to execute it, it was insane. And I said so, and I got a little passionate about it. And I was called into the big boss's office later, the CEO called me into his office, and he had this other guy in the office and a couple of other people and security nearby. And he said, um, so-and-so feels literally physically threatened. His words were, he thought you were going to jump over the table and physically harm him. We can't have that. We need you to tame your behavior in those meetings. My ego and my brain heard that as, shh, shut up. Nobody wants to hear from you. Sit down, stay in your space, stay in your lane. Go back a couple episodes, I just talked about how hard it is to stay in your lane and still excel as a leader. But stay in your lane, keep your mouth shut, do your job, do what you're here for, that's it. And so I did. And so for about two weeks, I walked in the door, I got my coffee, I went to my desk, I did my job and nothing else. 
just my job and nothing else. And I got called back into the CEO's office. And the CEO said, uh, what gives? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you're not participating in anything outside of your role. I'm like, that's what you told me to do. Get in my box, stay in my lane, check my ego. That's, that's what you told me to do. He said, well, but I, I didn't think you would have that much influence on everybody else. I said, what are you talking about? He said, since you've gone silent, radio silent, I've had at least a dozen people come to my office and say, what's going on? Are we okay as a launch company? Are we going to be all right? Is everything going to, is everything going to work out? Because it seems like, like everything is just chilled. What's going on? And he said, I had no idea how just your personality had that much influence in the entire office. I need you to be you. I'm like, you're going to have to pick. Because if I'm going to be me, I'm going to have a really hard time submitting ideas to idiots. And if I'm going to be me, then I'm going to be outspoken and I'm going to have my opinions. And you know I don't bring opinions if I haven't done the research behind them. So which one of me do you want? Do you want the quiet me or do you want the real me? He said, I want the real you, but we got to put some borders around that. We need, we need some framework. And I said, fine, get a water gun. And when I'm in a meeting and you feel like I'm out of control, just like you would a wet cat that's out of control, shoot me. Shoot me with a water gun and I will chill out. I will know that's my sign to just calm down, back off, and be somebody else for a minute. He said, fair enough. Now, this guy and I, we've still been doing business and ministry together over 30 years now. Because we came to terms with that. Now, we still have our moments out in the middle of a deer hunting pasture or sitting on his front porch in the middle of nowhere, Texas where we will both get passionate and we'll get very loud and we will argue and we will bring in all of our choice words. And when we're done, we'll hug and walk away and we both have a new idea. That's not always the case in leadership. It takes respect. It takes the time of earning that credibility with someone. Let me tell you something too. I say this to all of my coaching clients. There is an enormous gap between credentials and credibility. Credentials are those letters behind your name, the titles you've earned, the positions you've held. It's a great CV, if you will. Credibility has been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I can write the book on it. Those are two totally different things. And there are a lot of people with phenomenal credibility or credentials who have no credibility. And there are people who have incredible credibility and there's no degree behind their name at all. They didn't even finish school. But if you don't listen to their ideas, it's going to cost you. Because <laughs> they know what they're talking about because they've done it before. And even if it didn't succeed, they got all the scars from the trying and the failing until success came. And I don't care what kind of CV you've got at that point. If you've tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and then succeeded... That's the credibility that I want. If you're a speaker, if you're a trainer, if you're a coach, if you're a leader, good on you that you got all the credentials. But get the credibility. Get in the trenches and do the work. That is an enormously different thing. Coming from a military background, I remember those officers that would come in as young officers, 
first time on the flight line, first time near a fire truck, first time near an aircraft. And they had opinions and they had ideas and they had a college degree. That's how they became officers. But they've been in the military for about a week. And they would meet up with these guys, senior master sergeants, master sergeants, tech sergeants, who've got 10, 15, 20 years in service. They've been doing this job for a minute. They maybe didn't get a degree before they came on, so they're still enlisted. But maybe they got a degree after. But for certain, they've graduated from the school of hard knocks. They've made the mistakes. They've learned the ropes. They're doing it now. If you're asked a tough question in front of the crowd, if you're a smart young officer, you defer that question to the person who's been doing it the longest. Answering that in the arrogance of your education might be a flaw. Maybe you remember Top Gun when she says, the MiG-28 can't do X, Y, Z. And he said, oh, no, it can't. She's like, how do you know? He's like, well, I'd have to kill you if I told you that. But the truth of the matter was his experience trumped her education. He was face-to-face, eye-to-eye with the MiG-28, inverted, doing what she said it couldn't do. He had the evidence. It's one thing to say, I've got the facts, I've got the data, I've studied the books. It's a whole other thing to say, I've lived through this. And let me tell you what reality looks like. If you're in a position where you're being led by a leader who's not a great leader, just remember, sometimes it's not the facts, it's not the data, it's not what you have to say being true or not being true. It's about whether or not they believe you. Do you have the credibility? Have you proven that you are the kind of person who will only say what you know and what you know, you know from genuine evidence, not just, I read the book, it was in the paper, I saw it online, but I've been there and I've done that and I've got the scars to prove it. That's a whole different level of credibility. It's not just the first to tell the story. It's not the most manipulative storyteller who can negotiate everything and sell you on an idea or spend the truth. It's the person who has the genuine credibility. Sometimes it's the person three, four, five rungs lower ladder on the ladder of corporate position. Like the one who went to the boss's 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 boss and said, you were wrong and you need to apologize. It takes a lot of credibility to have that space. It takes a lot of cojones to be willing to say that. But when you're right and the evidence is there, bring your receipts and it will speak volumes. But be the kind of person that can be trusted with those receipts and that can change the world. If you're a leader and you're challenged by those above you, bring your receipts. But be the kind of person with credibility and you will change the world. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast for Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom. And so I joined Toastmasters. And I went from Toastmasters as a newbie. In fact, Jim and I joined at the same time, if I remember right. Uh, by the way, Jim Gardner is one of my of, mentors. You were ahead of me. You had already gone to national. Okay. So <clears throat> when I joined Toastmasters in the local club, uh, one of the challenges that I ran into was even the people who were what they would call a distinguished Toastmaster uh, still had some communication skills that I'm like, I thought you would have worked those out by now. And then within the first 10 weeks that I was there, I finished the first 10 level of speeches, which most people took like a year to do. And then I was invited to compete. And so within the first year of being a Toastmaster, I competed in the international speech competition against 35,000 other people, and I made it to the semifinals. 
That was about the same time that he joined the John Maxwell team. I had already been coaching with the Dale Carnegie program for almost five years at that point. And I realized there were still a whole lot of people who loved communicating, but really they were more along the lines of, I keep talking and nobody's listening, or I keep talking and nobody's paying any attention. And part of the challenge that we run into as communicators is we have to be willing to admit, uh, if nobody's listening, maybe it's not their hearing problem, but your talking problem. It's not what they heard, but what you said. And so we've got to be able to take responsibility on both sides of that. But as I began to work with a lot of people, they would say to me, I want you to help me write the speech that sells. And I was like, uh, I don't do that. Why? Anybody ever heard uh, Les Brown? Yes. Yeah. So if you've ever heard Les Brown, what's the name of his speech? I can't remember. You gotta be hungry. But if you've ever heard, you gotta be hungry. You've already heard, you gotta be hungry. And so a lot of people look at somebody like a Les Brown and they say, well, he makes 50 grand every time he steps on stage. I want to make 50 grand when I step on stage. Teach me how to write, you gotta be hungry. I'm like, well, you can't have, you gotta be hungry. It's already written. It's already been delivered a billion times. And it's powerful and it's thought provoking and it's life transforming, but it's his speech. How many of you have heard somebody deliver a speech or a story or a portion of a speech and realize, you've heard that before, right? And so the challenge we run into on both sides of that is, it's already been said before, and now you have a credibility problem. The other thing that I realized was that people had fascinating stories, but no point. How many of you have heard somebody say, I'm going to tell you a story. It really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm going to talk about today, but I think it's a great story. And they tell you the story, and when they're done, they're like, I'm not sure why I told you that story, but I thought it was entertaining. And you're like, no, it was a waste of my time. <laughs> Raise your hand yeah. if you know that's true, oh, right? Yeah. And so you've heard that, and you're like, why do people do that? <laughs> and so that juxtaposition of frustration, I'm thinking on one side, there are all these people who have been trained to be communicators, and they still fail at communication. And then there are these people who are great orators, but they don't have anything to say. So where's the balance? How do, how do you strike that balance? What do you do? And so I was in front of a group that Jim and I used to belong to, and somebody told their story, and I said, why don't you try it like this? And so I told it like that. And they went, how did you do that? Anybody ever heard of Dr. Caroline Leaf, neuroscientist? She says, if, if you do something and people go, how did you do that? And you think to yourself, I thought everybody could do that. That's your gift. Mm -hmm. I went, oh, interesting. And so I started doing it on a regular basis. I'd hear somebody tell their story and I would tell them back. And I had a guy, I still have the business cards in my pocket because I had a guy show up at one of my events, sat through the whole thing. At the end of the day, he said, when I came here, I came because my friend drugged me. I don't go to seminars like this. I've been to way too many of them and I hate them. I'm like, well, I'm glad you stayed all day. He said, you know, the first hour, <laughs> I was ready to walk out. And then you told my story. And I realized this guy knows something I don't know. He said, but I think you've got the wrong name for your class. At the time, it was called Transforming Stories, Transforming Lives. I said, okay, what should it be? He said, I think you should call it, I can tell your story better than you can, and I can prove it. <laughs> And I had a pastor tell me that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard anybody say. And I said, well, if you play golf with Tiger Woods and he says, I'm going to beat you by 10 strokes, you argue with him? If you're playing basketball with Michael Jordan and he says, I'm going to dunk this ball, do you go, yeah, right? No. If Shaq says, I will keep you out of the key, do you say, yeah, not today? No. Because you realize they're the best at what they do. 
So in honest humility, we're about to test that theory and we'll see if I'm right, if the gift holds its weight. And we're gonna do that by inviting all of you to come up here one at a time. But here is a master teacher on storytelling and I learned so much. Um, I'm really gonna have to sit down and go back through everything and I think I might have to have some more coffees with Lauren, but uh, it was totally worth my time and I really highly recommend it if you're looking to grow your ministry, grow your business, uh, grow your career. Uh, Lauren will serve you well. Thank you.